Mars is flat. What? I said Mars is flat, half milk carton. Yeah, I heard you. I meant... But what do you mean by that? I mean, like, it's not round. What are you on about? I'm on about the shape of Mars. Like, it's a freaking disc with all the mountains and canals and ontogular flumps and Mars City on the top path and rocks and shrubs on the underneath bit. Like, you know, the undercarriage. Twist, twist for a minute now. We're back on air. Hello and welcome back to Mars Radio 14, the third best radio station in the Martian Space Force broadcasting spectrum. My name is Captain Half Milk Carton, and I'm joined by Lieutenant Bungalow to... Uh, why are you here, Bungalow? To tell you about the fish sandwich I just ate. It was delicious. Oh, yes. The salmon of insight, Bungalow. Was it tasty? Oh, very tasty. Nogular, in fact. Well, I mean, well, I mean the bitter side of nogular. Bit like if you fry in the raptoid flumberwackle in the juice of a cantagular glimpse armpit. You know... Spicy, but nice. All right, well, well, that sounds like an acquired taste. And can you tell the listeners how you managed to catch the Salmon of Insight? The legendary Martian Salmon of Insight. The creature that bestows all Martian knowledge into the mind of whatever eats it. I was up on the side of uh, Olympus Mons, grubbing for worms underneath the mobstacle bush. Hold it there, Bungalow. Are you telling me that you caught the Salmon of Insight wander around in elemental chlorine halfway up the tallest mountain on Mars? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why do you ask? Well, because fish are traditionally found in water, Bungalow. <laughs> you would say that half milk carton, simpleton. Uh, it's a typical sort of thing a Geoidian would say. Uh, it's easy knowing you've never eaten the salmon of insight. Insight, insight. I suppose you think gravity holds Mars in some sort of freaking orbit. <laughs> and then Mars spins on some sort of, like, axis. <laughs> but it does. Only in the minds of fools, half milk uh, Because they have never been enlightened. Like me. Or, well, anybody else is... Agrees with me. <laughs> By the nine triangulas of Bongalon, what are you talking about, Bungalow? I'm talking about the fact that gravity, it doesn't exist. Look, watch what happens when I let go of this glass. Why did you break that? Well, I didn't break anything. Mars broke it, because when I let go of the glass, it became a static object in the universe, and the upwardness of Mars raced towards it and caused it to smash. Mars is actually an infinite disk moving upwards at top speed. For obligong's sake, Bungalow, how can Mars be an infinite disk? Can you not see the roundy shape of it when you go up into space? In the space rocket? No, in the sandwich toaster. Of course in the space rocket, you know, the thing you travel in to go to other planets. Oh, that was all faked half milk card. Planet Earth is actually a warehouse south of uh, the Maxwell Crater, I think. You'd know that if you'd eaten the salmon of insight. Insight, insight. The one you caught grubbing for worms underneath the marmstickle bush halfway up Olympus Mons. Yeah. And tell me this. Did the salmon of insight have grey fur and a bit of a temper? You know, it did. Took a chunk out of my freaking elbow. See the bruise in there on my anterior vestibule. The salmon of insight, insight. So did that. I bet it did, Bungalow, because it wasn't the salmon of insight you ate. It was the badger of bewilderment. It was not. You know what? That's 
I'm very dis. That's the typical sort of thing a Geoidian would say. Face it, you're afraid of the truth. Frickin' Geoidians. Ah, uh, for obligong's sake. We leave it there, folks. Hello. This has been from the Cronscast. A quick update. I wanted to apologise for the delay in getting our episodes out to you. Life uh, got in the way at the Cronscast uh, HQ, but we're back on task now and we're excited for you to hear what we've got in store for you for 2024. For those who don't know, we're now splitting the podcast into two episodes per month, uh, and this is going to be part two of our wonderful interview with John Langham. Just to give some context, we'd asked John about the worrying news about fellow author and friend of his, Laird Barron, and this is what he had to say. So the, uh, um, I don't even know if there is exactly a short version of this. The 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 long version is that, that uh, Laird had been uh, feeling poorly for, for quite some time and um, getting slowly worse. Uh, COVID, of course, increased everybody's isolation from one another. And um, Laird sort of is, is naturally a kind of a hermit to, to begin with. And, um, and also just stubborn. Also just as like, no, you know, I'm missing a leg, but that's okay. You know, tis a flesh wound, you know? <laughs> and um, so I had over the course of, of several months last fall, uh, observed him getting worse and worse, or I guess really listened to him getting worse and worse. We would talk on the phone and he would be coughing and this sort of stuff. Uh, it, it finally, um, things were getting really, really bad. And, 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 uh, I, I was quite concerned. And then he called me, I think it was like maybe January 3rd. I was trying to remember the exact date and, um, said, uh, Jessica, you know, his partner, she wants me to go to the, the emergency room. And I'm, I'm kind of thinking, you know, I should. Yeah. And, and, uh, I said to him, terrific. I'll meet you there. I'm on my way. Um, and just sort of gave him no chance to argue, you know, <laughs> like, so, and he was, he looked horrible. He, he, uh, he had lost about 70 pounds, uh, and was, was really skeletal and just in a bad, bad way. And his doctors subsequently said, you know, you were right at the edge. <laughs> you were, if you'd let it go another day or wow. two. Um, so fortunately he had an absolutely fantastic medical team. Um, he was transferred from our local hospital to a regional medical center closer to the city. And they just, uh, uh, you know, it was just go, go, go. Um, and, uh, so they did quite extensive surgery. They discovered that he had, uh, you know, untreated diabetes that he probably had for years and high blood pressure and, and, uh, and, and, a, and a horrible kind of abscess that had formed in his, in his chest. And so when all was said and done, he had to have uh, very extensive surgery. They removed a, a third of one of his lungs and a, and a whole bunch of necrotic tissue. And that's actually long-term, that's actually been the, the big problem. The diabetes is under control. Uh, the, um, um, the high blood pressure is under control. He's eating well. Uh, he walks uh, about a mile a day. But um, you know, when, when they have to do that, when the, when the doctors have to do that kind of surgery where they just remove that much tissue, it takes a long time for that to heal. Even if you're, you know, uh, uh, in your twenties and in, in perfect health, you know, and, and, um, so it's just going to be a while that's, which, which is difficult. Um, it, it's difficult for him, you know, it's been at this point, 
geez, about seven months, I guess. And it could be another year or two. And that it's difficult to be patient over, over that, over that length of, of time as your body repairs itself. And it's a kind of vicious cycle where, you know, when you, when you are diabetic and, and have high blood pressure, whatever exercise you can do helps you to, to main, to manage those conditions and bring them under control, but he can only do so much because of the, the wound in essence that he still has. Uh, in yeah. Especially with his lungs. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and you know, where, uh, in general, you know, he lives across a mountain range from me, like our mountain ridge from me, about 11 miles away. And, um, but, but the general area that, that we live in is, is notorious for um, allergens, for pollen and various other kinds of things. And, and so um, in general, we're living inside a huge valley and this part of the valley, there just isn't much airflow and it tends to trap a lot of the allergens. So it's difficult if you have any kind of uh, uh, breathing issues or, or, or what have you that kind of exacerbates them. And of course, the, the recent uh, you know, wildfires over the, over the summer from Canada, you know, the, all that stuff drifting down has not helped. So uh, he's back to writing. He's writing a, a little bit every day, but he's not writing as much as he would like to. Uh, because he just gets tired. He, he just, his body is still using a lot of energy repairing itself. Um, you know, the good thing is maybe not quite the right way to put it, but, uh, you know, he, he recognized or he, he had gotten himself in, in a pretty gloomy place uh, the last year or two because, you know, he, he wrote his Coleridge trilogy of novels. They didn't set the world on fire the way that he wanted. Um, as most of our work does, and at least not right away, you know, it, it but it, it, um, his editor left the, uh, left the company. And a lot of times when that happens, you're, if you're, especially working on a series, the books can just be kind of orphaned, you know? And, and so he finished like a sort of a trilogy, but he had a lot of ideas. He and I used to kick around ideas for, you know, what are books four or five and six going to be? And the, so that wasn't happening. So he wasn't in the in the best place mentally. I think that was part of the reason he wasn't taking care of himself. Also, he had no health insurance. And, you know, it's the cliche in America. If you don't have health insurance, don't get sick, you know. And uh, so he um, because we did the fundraiser, we did this, you know, this amazing fundraiser uh, where we raised so much money so fast that GoFund, I think it was GoFund, they actually shut it down because they thought it was some kind of money laundering scheme or something like that. They could <laughs> of all the ways you're going to do that and um, <laughs> wasn't actually you, you say that wasn't there some sort of scam or somebody hijacked it or am i making that up? yeah somebody some people with somebody hijacked the. so oh, I remember yeah, yeah. The, there, there were there were there were uh, a few people who sent around these these oh i was so it's funny i forgot about that i was so i was incandescent with rage at those i'm people, not surprised you know and i mean of course they did, because that's what always happens, you know, like, like, yeah. but I was just, when it's, when it's your friend, uh, you know, or family member, you know, you just, uh, um, so this was yeah. for people who don't know this, uh, some bad characters set up, what was it? A fake, a fake link yeah. to, to siphon like, money yeah, towards yeah. themselves for Laird yeah. Baron's, uh, convalescence. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sure that he'll and, put and them in a story at some fundraiser. Point. Yeah, I think uh, Isaiah yeah, I mean, Coleridge that's... or the children of Old Leech will pay a pay a visit to them at some point. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, you uh, talk about malevolence. That's pretty low, isn't it? Well, it's just you know, uh, yeah, you just feel kind of like you don't have to be 
that bad all the time people you know like just just you know just yeah, you don't have to be a saint but just come on come on just yeah. you know um but you know he's um the that outpouring of support meant a lot and and, and people sent me um I, I was like, okay, if you want to send a postcard or a get well card, send it to me and I'll read them to him. And, and there were, there were just astonishing things that people wrote. Um, there was this one woman who wrote um, a, uh, I'm trying to think if it was, if it was a card or if it was a message online, but she said, you know, she said, my husband back before I met him, uh, he was going through a really, really bad time, a really, really dark place. And he told me that he read your stuff, Laird, and it, it sort of pulled him through that. And she said, I will always support the man who kept my husband alive for me to, to meet. Wow. I mean, what do you say to that? You know, that was, uh, I, I mean, it's, it's almost like one of those things where you, you think if someone says that to you, you've kind of justified your existence as a writer, <laughs> whatever, whatever else, you know, like, like that, that one thing. So I, um, I am hopeful. Um, the other thing is that Laird is enjoying the hell right now out of the Trump uh, stuff. Oh yeah. Um, he said to me, I'm just glad I'm alive to see all of this because all the, all the payback, you know? So he wrote, I don't know if it's still up on Twitter, but when everything was just <laughs> falling apart, he wrote a series of tweets. It was a story in tweets where it was just like the, the Trump administration, like falling apart and, and, but in, in a sort of Laird Barron, neo-noir, maybe horror kind of thing. And it's hysterically funny, but it's also much more accurate as it turns out than anybody realized at the time. So, um, yeah. yeah, I hope that'll be published at some, uh, at some point with appropriately macabre uh, illustrations to go along with it. Yeah, I mean, he, that, it's, it's, there's no shortage of inspiration at the moment with Trump and, you know, in our country, our respective governments. Uh, Dan and I, when when you were offline, Dan and I were just talking about Black Mirror. Is mm. it Black Mirror or Dark Mirror? What's it called? Dark Mirror or Black Mirror? Anyway, you know, it's yeah, seems... Black Mirror. Black Mirror. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's it seems like that was, uh, you know, really got its finger on the pulse for many yeah. years. I mean, it's six well, or seven, uh, six or seven uh, season now. It's yes, yeah, I think it's it might be six. I can't remember. Um, but the the reason we're talking about Black Mirror, I I, I was. Um, saying to Bean that what I've been watching recently is repeats of what well, I've been watching from the beginning, Monty Python's Flying Circus, because the whole mm -hmm. thing is on Netflix at the moment. So I started at the beginning, I've been watching the whole thing, and I was just struck at the fact that they could have released that whole series in the last 10 years, and it still would be as relevant. The satire yeah, yeah. is poking fun at the same people, at the same figures of authority. And I kind of was comforted by that. It actually made me feel quite good because it made me realise that there's always this background of incompetence to a certain degree, that there's always the figures who need to be ridiculed lurking around in the background from, and they could have been, you know, they, they could have released those, those shows in the last 10 years about Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn and people like that on this side of the pond. And, and it would still fit, you know, the, the, yeah. the same people uh, they're taking the piss out of as, as they would have done 50, 55 years ago. And that actually made me feel quite good. You know, you get, <laughs> you, you get, you get through these that, like we said before, there's always an apocalypse. There's always something that's coming to get you, but you get through it, you know, we go on, we move on. It depends on. on the apocalypse, doesn't it? <coughs> well, okay, I guess in, in theory, there is one apocalypse out there that actually is going to get you. 
Hmm. But you don't know which one I it's going to be, and that's that's fine. I want um do I want Rullier coming out of the ocean as my apocalypse? Because zombies seems too easy. Like there's we've seen so much zombie content. Plus, you know we how know to how to we know how to kill zombies as well yeah. now. You know, we've Avian... had so many informational videos about it. Yeah, you know, how many Alien... series of Walking Dead were there? Thirteen? We know, know. eleven zombies. Something like that. Yeah. Aliens is a bit sort of well, we just have to see what we're dealing with when they get here. What else? Biblical. You might get a nice one like ET. Yeah, but well, that's it's not also his... you don't. The, there's the the logistics of invading another planet are actually very very difficult. When when I was a kid, yeah. I, I was a big a big science fiction fan for a while, and there was a novel by uh, Larry Niven and Jerry Pornell called Footfall, and it was their attempt to write an alien invasion novel, and that was their their big problem was why why bother invading? Oh, you need you need yeah. resources like you need water. You go to the rings of Saturn and you just pluck a gigantic and an asteroid-sized lump of ice out of that, and and there's your water. Oh, you need minerals. Uh, go to the asteroid belt and there's there's an endless supply of minerals. There's no, like there's no real rational reason to invade another um, another world. And so they tried to work out, you know, that there were these aliens who. Um, are are more of a, a almost medieval level socially, but they've inherited this this kind of ultra sophisticated equipment, which allows them to 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 do this. So it's this particular set of circumstances. But um, I, I yeah, it just seems like for aliens, it would be a terrible bother to to try to invade mm-hmm. us. You know, it, uh, I think my, well, for, my... for tech, such technologically advanced beings, they always seem to be a bit unidimensional, don't they? They don't have. Which and I guess you know you need that if you're going to make Independence Day. You need that all the nuance has to be with human characters, but was, it's was never that with the aliens. Was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, sorry, well, anyway, sorry. my my uh, my apocalypse. Well, if it's the apocalypse, you know the shallows. Well, of course you know yeah, the shallows. Yeah. You wrote it. <laughs> I've I've heard of that. Yeah. Let yes, me, do you well, know that story that you wrote? If I get a friendly blue crab, <laughs> yeah, let us tell you about your story. <laughs> if I get a friendly blue crab to keep me company every day, and to ha- oh no, God, because it's got that horrible end. oh God, the, the the fruit on the okay, so okay, I could live with that. I could live with that apocalypse. I thought it was quite exciting. Like I didn't feel fear. Well, no, I you felt... couldn't live with it because it's the apocalypse. That's no, you the point. Have you read? You wouldn't it, live with it. It would destroy everything. No, it doesn't. So you couldn't live with it. It's a heartbreaking apocalypse as well. There's more to do with that. So the ending is very sad and the kind of stuff I love. Um, But, (laughs) yeah, that would be my apocalypse. Actually, that's probably a good segue onto our um, talking about short stories, if we've done with... If we've yeah, I, yes, we, we, we've wanted to talk about short stories for a while, haven't we? Yeah, it's especially for, it's a particular interest to me simply because I that's how I started and I wrote so many and then realizing sure. the difference in structure between a short story and a, a long form. Um, but also one thing I was really happy about when I discovered The Fisherman <clears throat> was that you have so much more out there in, in, in anthologies and stuff. And they're so they're so um, I just I, I don't want to gush. But I want to um, just go through a couple of titles. Just maybe a lot of people won't. Well, I don't know, but people might not have um, known some of your shorter stuff. So, in Paris, in the mouth of Kronos, I um, 
uh, that that is a wonderful story. I've, I, I, I see it as hitmen set up for failure as a target in, French, in the French hotel turns out to be a little larger than a normal man. Also, bonus points for um, including a farmyard toy in the story, which I really love. Because, you know, when you have those arsehole characters that, that nobody likes, and there's one that's just an arsehole, but it does something <laughs> that's really cute, and you think, I can't hate you now. So that's that's one of the characters in, in Paris in the Mouth of Kronos. Of particular interest to Dan as well, because he has past uh, relations, well, not relations with Kronos, but... Um... <laughs> Do I? Do I? <laughs> yes, Goya's painting. Oh. Yeah. You mean... And then there's Mr. Gaunt. And before we get off this podcast, I have to show you my Mr. Gaunt trousers. Um, <laughs> Mr. Gaunt is Was another he talking one got... in code, I wondered to myself. He, he has a pair of trousers with your face plastered all over them. Uh, right, no, no, right. no. They just... Right. He, he I does. Will show you and then what... he goes on the one, two, three bus Don't in London one, two, and, bus and he does the Vogue dance. <laughs> Don't mention the one, two, three bus. And they're not Vogue trousers. They're very horror trousers. Anyway, Mr. Gaunt, a silent <laughs> butler who's... The scariest thing about him for me was like his harsh, harsh whisper of yes. That's really evocative. Um, as a, you know, as a story that's, I suppose, something that really stands out for a lot of your fans, people who've read your stuff. And also your your handle on Twitter is Mr. Gaunt, which is <laughs> quite troubling, actually. Um, but um, is, is it really? <laughs> no, it's not. I more... always, I, I, because I hadn't read uh much of your short stuff at the time when I first saw you on Twitter, I assumed that it was some sort of uh, Leland Gaunt uh, homage from Neville things. The funny thing is I, I had completely spaced that. Oh, like I'd completely forgotten that, that his name when I, when I created my character and it was mm. only at some point afterwards uh, I thought, Oh, Oh, wait a minute. And I thought, well, you know, it, it, it's too late. It's been published already. But it works well anyway with the yeah, yeah, character. Yeah. The character and what what he is or isn't. That's the funny the thing is that my my middle sister, uh, none of my none of my siblings really read my stuff, but once in a while they will. And my middle sister had I didn't even know she'd read that story, but she kept misnaming the character. So at one point she called him Mister Bones, and at another point she called him Mister Grant. And I I thought, <laughs> you know I want to write you a, call him Led. I want to write a couple of <laughs> I write a couple of stories. I want to write a story called Mister Bones and a story called Mister Grant at some point. I don't know what they'll be about, but just I liked the idea that that oh those are other. Um, I had another uh, a friend uh, who said to me, uh, uh, oh, you're still, you know, we were talking about movies that, that we like to watch. And she was like, oh, all your movies are five million bullets and five million tentacles. And uh, I thought, that's a title. That's a title for a story. I don't know what the story is, but that's, you know. Well, the the uh, the rest of the story, so I was, I was we, well, we mentioned The Shallows. Um, for those who don't, haven't read it it's a post-apocalyptic tale with a lot of heart as far as i'm concerned and a little blue crab sidekick um i think it's my favorite actually that one you've written of your shorts um and it may even contain really in it we don't know because i don't like to you know when people talk about lovecraft and they just assume that it's going to be Cthulhu, or they assume it's going to be this or that cosmic horror doesn't mean lovecraft's pantheon of gods to me it can mean you know a lot more other things um the unbearable proximity of Mr. Dunn's balloons, which I wouldn't even know how to synopsize. <laughs> it's such a bizarre, horrible story that doesn't, again, do anything 
scary you know that stab doesn't come until the end so one of the things i talk about on the forums a lot on our on the so, but that's, it's very mr james actually don't yeah. you think is that yeah well exactly you have this i don't know i think mr james can be spooky from the setup i mean you know this guy in is wrong is yeah, a wrong but, one. But what's what the the oh, um it, the, the denouement of mr james what's it called the, the, the james, james the wallop, in, the, wallop. The, the wallop yeah, yeah. i th- i think it's I think this is where we differ in genre. Why I always moan about this on the website is I am pre-sold to long build-ups, to character, to geography, to even nothing in inverted commas happening in terms of what I want, rather than this preponderance of stories where it's like, boom, 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 shit's going down in the first act. You know, yes, you've got to have that. But I think in horror, you have to, for somebody to be, for the reader to be scared, you have to, you know, uh, relate to the character much more than it is important in other genres I would say possibly and I think with that that balloon story um, the um, unbearable proximity of Mr Dun- Dunn's balloons and it's kind of it's very Edgar Allan Poe more than for me than um, M.R. James and I don't want to do the spoiler so I'm not going to but um, mm. that's you know that's something that <sighs> Again, coming back to the permission to write what you want, some of the stuff, if you put it on paper as a treatment or a pitch to someone, they were like, well, no, that's a bit stupid or whatever. Loads of my stuff I've written about like a leg, a disembodied leg that kicks people, you know, like ridiculous on paper. But if Stephen King can make a laundromat scary, you know, then anyone can make, well, not anyone, but, you know, you could. Anything's up for grabs. Yeah, exactly. It's open season. Um, and then I think probably one of the most popular, famous ones is um, Carnivorous Sky. Um, again, I don't really want to do spoilers. It's vampire in inverted commas, space vampires, possibly. Um, don't want to spoil that one. I'm just, this is more, le- I'm, I'm just nagging. This is just a, a rollout for, for the members of Crons, really, of stuff I want them to read of yours. So I'm sorry I'm doing all the talking. No, not at all. Not at all. Um, Technicolor, again, this is one of my favorites. I, I'm a dance teacher and we did uh, The Mask of the Red Death um, as a site specific nice. yeah, promenade performance. Um, so it's sort of immersive theater. And we divided up the dance studios with these sheets and the audience had to walk through the different colors of the rooms. Oh, that's fantastic. So I had real, real there's love. A story, there's a story in that right there. Well, yeah, I mean, we we scared the audience a lot because obviously I was producing it with one of my colleagues. She's not a horror fan, but I was. And I'm like, okay, the theme of this one is, you know, whatever. This room death. is going to be dolls. <laughs> this one's going to be <laughs> disease. This one's going to be death. This one, you know, it's like, yeah. but that's anyway. So Technicolor is really, it's one of those short stories that trips you up at the end. You're like, how did I not see this coming? Um, and then the last one I think on my list, let me check, is, oh yeah, City of the Dog, which is a gritty, dreary, urban tale, a failing relationship, and it's got something else, the as I call them, the Hounds of $10, um, which is actually the Hounds of Tindalos. But if, you, if you're dictating into your phone and you say the Hounds of Tindalos, it says the Hounds of $10. That's how, <laughs> nice. that's how it comes out. Again, there's a story prompt there as well. No, exactly. That's that's the thing, right? Is that there's somebody who keeps hearing it that way and doesn't realize what it actually is. Uh, the angles, the angles. Um, yeah. So those are the those are my picks, just off the top of my head. 
I would have to say I'm very stressed that I could, there's two of your collections I can't get in the UK. Fang, uh, Children of the Fang, and there's another one. Um, is it Genealogies? Is yes. it that one? Uh, I think I have that one. It's two of the newer ones anyway. I don't think, I can't get the Children of the Fang. There's Children was, of the Fang. I, Corp, Corpse Mouth is the very newest. Corpse one. Mouth, yeah. yeah. Corpse oh, Mouth and okay. Children of the Fang. Um, so I wanted to go back to um, sort of the way short stories are they fit into our 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 right our, our practice as writers and um our submission process and the viability of them and and your sort of take on that if that's okay sure absolutely i i um i i think with stories my um my concern with writing horror stories when I when I came back to, to really writing horror in, in full force in my very late twenties, my my concern was so many horror stories seem to me um, uh, varieties of what I call the trap story. You know, you you the character stumbles into something and bang, it's got them. The monster got them. You know, and and the the um, the the story is is not about character development or, or you know, it's it's really just about bang the the jaws of the trap snapping shut on them. And, and I didn't want to do that. Um, there are writers, obviously, like, like say, you know, Poe, uh, you know, can write something like the telltale heart and give you this, this, you know, in, in whatever it is, two pages, three pages can, can give you this fully developed character and, and, you know, but that's, he's Poe. And um, so I thought to myself that that for a horror story to be effective, right, it needs to have compelling characters that that you know you uh, you don't have to like them, um, but but you have to be interested in them, I, I, I suppose. And um, and and so I thought, well, you know, so they're going to need to be longer, um, and they're going to need to take their time to to set up the the characters stuff, you know, to to try to develop the the character. And um, so in, in a way, a lot of what I had in mind, uh, it's probably still true. A lot of what I had in mind when I was writing my stories were novels, you know, were, were, were things like King's work or Straub's work, say, or, or other, other writers, you know, Faulkner or, or whoever. Um, I was thinking about, about the way that they created character and deployed character and, and the way they uh, tried to render uh, a kind of an environment that was recognizable, quasi recognizable to uh, to the reader, uh, before introducing the supernatural element. And I I thought you know that was the way to do what I wanted to do. Um, as we said before, the the challenge was that that left me with these stories that were like forty or fifty pages long. You know they they just they weren't they weren't. Uh, uh, I mean online stuff has just never really caught up to novellas um it's novellas still work best in in print and 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 that that kind of longer even even the novelette stuff they really haven't they really haven't caught up to it's it's the the emphasis is really still on short 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 you know 7500 words and we're tapping out and even that's a, a bit of a stretch and so that's a you know that's a, a problem i was i was fortunate and that when i was when i was writing there were still a number of print publications that would accept novelettes. And um, so that, that kind of gave me the, the freedom to write at the length I, I, I wanted to write at for the, for the kinds of stories I wanted to tell. I also, with those stories... Is that how you started? Was that your, were they your, did that represent your first 
successes in in publishing and going yes, for that novel. Yes, yes, I had I had been I had been writing um, I had been writing since I my first year of high school. I mean, actually, even before that, to be honest, when I was a kid, I I um, in, in in primary school, I was writing these uh, you know Tolkien pastiches, um, but they never. I wanted to you know. I would read uh, a Tolkien or especially like Lloyd Alexander or Conan the Barbarian who got me through fifth grade math class and um, apology, sister Anne. And um, I would. <laughs> you know, Has a bean making a sign of the cross there? You know, it's uh, just in case, just in case, right? It's uh, for sister Anne, but um but uh, uh, I wanted to imitate those. I wanted to, you know, it's that that impulse you have. I like something. I want to do the same thing. But I, I you know, it, it was never very convincing in my um, uh, in my case. And then, uh, and I was also a big comic book fan when I was a kid. I, I really, I loved to draw. I really wanted to be an artist. I had this wonderfully supportive art teacher in uh, in primary school, and she would put up my drawings in the art room, and you know. And I really wanted to work in comic books. That was my uh, that was my goal. I was um, distressed that all the comic book stuff seemed to happen in New York City, and so I would try to set things in my little locale of the Mid Hudson Valley, which you know. Um, and when I read Christine, bang, everything just kind of coalesced, and I was like, "This is this is it. This, I guess, sort of brings everything everything together for me." Um, and and it it set me immediately I was writing horror stories, um, which as I've often joked, were set in Maine because I thought, Oh, you know, that's where horror happens, you know, it, it uh, but eventually I started to set them in my, in my neck of the woods. Although, um, it just because, you know, there was no real, like, I just, it was cool to have a werewolf running around my, my neck of the woods. Um, it was in university when I encountered Faulkner in, in particular, I, I think. And, and those, a lot of the writers of the American South, Flannery O'Connor and Robert Penn Warren, and also a, a local writer named William Kennedy, who was just a little bit north of here in Albany, who wrote a novel called Ironweed, which is a, a brilliant, brilliant novel about a, a homeless guy wandering around Albany, the capital of New York State, seeing ghosts um, uh, over the course of a, um, over the course of a weekend, and um, or Halloween, I think it is. Anyway. Um, and uh, that was when I started to sort of think that the the use of the landscape, the use of, of place, and what you were writing about, you know, the, the 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 that the setting could be more than just window dressing. That the the setting could be could be really part of the story. Um, at the same time, when I when I really started writing, so so I should add that during my during my my twenties, I wrote a long novel, I wrote a short novel, I wrote a whole bunch of long stories, wrote a whole bunch of short stories, none of which um, were ever published uh, or likely will be, um, unless I kick off right now and my wife and son are desperate to cash in on you know look at this. Um, the John Langan bootlegs. Exactly, the bootlegs. The problem is I wrote most of them in pencil, so they're slowly, the paper <laughs> is rubbing against itself and it's slowly erasing yeah. them. So Timing, which, you know, time is goodness. having its way with them. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but I, so so when, there were a few things I thought when I started to, to write, um, when I started to write horror fiction for, for real, I, I thought, or in earnest, I guess I would say, I thought that I was going to write those longer stories, lots of character, 
I thought to myself, a lot of my friends were like, oh, I want to write stories that are like movies. And I thought, no, I don't want to do that. That's why we have movies. I want to mm. write stories that, that mm. you know, can only be done as stories. Yeah, uh, I and- always liked, you mentioned Tolkien. Tolkien, we never do Tolkien, but he always seems to find his way into the conversation. Yeah. When, when I read <laughs> Lord of the Rings, it, the, the big thing about Lord of the Rings in the 80s, maybe early 90s, was that it was unfilmable. Yes. Can't make a film of it. Can't make a film of it. And that was the draw. And so I, yeah, I completely agree. The draw of, of writing is to, I always try and do something that I think I, you, you won't be able to make a film of this. I, I always like to have that, that sense of challenge or ambition. And that, you couldn't film this. Yeah, you commercially, I think I was, page. I was an idiot. Commercially, I'm like, you yeah, fool. well, why didn't you? <laughs> yeah, you should have been doing, you should have been writing Christine and selling the film right exactly before exactly. you even published John it. Carpenter, yeah. where are you? <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I, um, and and I wanted to be experimental. I think that was the other thing was I, I, I really wanted to, um, I, 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 I was like, well, what happens if you tell a horror story this way or that way or the or the next way? And, um, so I, 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 and I think that's still something, um, still something I'm interested in. I'm, I'm, I'm more comfortable, I I suppose at this point in in my writing, uh, you know, just writing a story, quote unquote, you know, Uh, but, but there are, um, I I have enough, I I guess, uh, faith in, in that method to do that. But I still, you know, I still have these projects I'm hoping to get to that are just nuts. Um, and I'm just like, is anybody gonna, <laughs> is anybody gonna read this? Um, but, uh, I, I, that for me has always been kind of important. Um, Peter Straub said in an interview with Douglas Winter, I think it was that he, uh, he said, I value, I value virtuosity, the ability to do undoable things. And I, I sort of in, in, in some ways took that as, as a kind of a motto, um, that that I I really wanted to be able to to push things um, I, I I was uh, to to new places you know I I was um, part of a conversation with with uh, Josh Mallerman and we were talking about uh, about this that that um, you know Mallerman was saying could you write a horror story that was a horror story but also a romance. Um, and not just that the romance is a, a, a backstory to the horror story or just, you know, but that those two things coexist with each other. Um, and, and I think that, that that was really interesting to me because I think, um, I do think horror is, I disagree with the notion that horror isn't a genre simply because a genre is like a kind of thing and, and things that, you know, have similarities to one another. But I, I, I do think that, and I, and further, I think that that a lot of horror stories tend to fall into certain narrative patterns. But I think it's useful to try to break out of those or break those up. And so to to think, oh well, what if you had a horror story that was, you know, a romance story, um, or um, funny we mentioned E. M. Forrester before. Um, Forrester has that uh, the story of a panic um about this group of of english tourists in um in italy who who encounter pan who who encounter the that that sort of the same force that arthur machen is writing about in in the great god pan um and that so many of those fantasy eclan early 20th century writers are are writing about 
Um, and, and it is in some ways, it's another one of Forrester's stories about, you know, the, the, the English in Italy. And yet it's, it's also an encounter with some kind of overwhelming numinous force that, that causes you to panic, that just causes you to, to lose, uh, lose everything. So there's, there's, you could say that about the romance books as well. There's an element of horror. I think certainly there was a a book written by Google engineers, the software engineers called, I think it was, is it a million bad thoughts or a billion bad thoughts? And, (laughs) And it was an analysis of the tropes of romance novels Mm -hmm. from a, with large female readership. And the they what they did was they aggregated all of the um male love interest trope down to one of five one of five character uh or character types and it was like pirate surgeon vampire werewolf and billionaire i think i think they were the five and so and they all acted as a sort of horror adversary you know there was something frightening about them was that done by men though not women <clears throat> It was, it was Google engineers, so it could be it probably, probably men. men. Probably <laughs> men. <laughs> lonely, lonely men. <laughs> I think, I think you know. I think it's a bit dangerous ground to start saying, "Oh, this is what women like." No, it just popped into my head. No, no, you know, I, I don't mean you. I just mean Google engineers probably need a few more things to help them rather than put them down in terms. But of they're engineers, you know. This is this is what they, you know, this is what but they I, do. So, but so it just—it just struck me as amusing that you know, you, what what if you could do a horror and a romance? But there well, is even that... think about you know, uh, um, the sort of the Bildungsroman, you know, the sort of classic yeah. novel of development, right? You know, like you know whether David Copperfield or, or I mean, the thing is that like Oliver Twist, you can absolutely—I I, I mean, I'll, I don't know—I guess Oliver Twist is sort of behind Kipling's Just So Stories or, or Mowgli, The Jungle Book, and which is behind Gaiman's uh, The Graveyard Book. And, and so you can sort of see how that kind of narrative could be adapted into a horror or, you know, horror adjacent setting. But something like David Copperfield, where it's like, I am born and, I, and we follow the first 30 years of my life. Could you have that as a, as a kind of a horror structure? Um, I mean, I think Michael McDowell, uh, oh, my you're mentioning the, the elementals, but I, I think his Blackwater uh, series uh, you know, which is this, uh, it, it's Brawling. funny, the, the French have this term, the Roman fleuve, the, the, the novel as river, the river novel. And this is a novel in which the river is very, very important. To, so I think McDowell was aware of that. It's kind of punning on that. Yeah. But it is a family saga that's set over six, almost novellas, you know, very short novels, but they, they, uh, they aggregate to, to one big sprawling family, family saga. And I think that he, you know, he was trying that he was, he was, um, he was trying to be sort of formally inventive in, in that kind of way. And, and also, I, sorry, sorry, ahead. carry on. No, no, no. I, I was going to say, I, I think that, 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 that there's still, when I think about a book like that, I think, man, there is like still tons and tons that, that we can do. There's still tons and tons to explore as a, as a writer of, of horror fiction, but, but I'm sorry, go on. I, I was just going to compare, you know, talking about Michael McDowell, uh, to Charles L. Grant and the Ox Run Station, all his books, which are set in the same place. And I know, I know Dan wanted to talk about geography. Maybe that would have been better in the first part of the podcast. But um, the fact that you have these writers like Michael McDowell, who writes Southern Gothic, yourself, we've got Albany, upstate New York, 
Adirondacks, Catskills, Stephen King in Maine, H.P. Lovecraft in Provincetown, um, Rhode Island. Um, it would be fantastic if he were in Provincetown, but yeah, it's Providence. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, um, and, and, you know, Charles L. Grant created this mysterious Oxram Station place. And with, um, going back to Michael McDowell and the, the uh, Blackwater saga, he, oh, so I've, got, I've got so many different links here, but the, the, the Blackwater saga of Michael McDowell is this family saga over these 200 years or however long it is, how many generations it is, that is <clears throat> almost like an experiment, again, in terms of, uh, you know, like Stephen King did with The Green Mile, chucking out a little book at a time, a little book at a time, and making The Green Mile. And that's what happened with um, The River. Oh, no, sorry, not The River. Um, Black, Blackwater. Blackwater. Yeah, yeah. Um, and... But what it also does is it informs his other works for me now. So if I read Cold Mood over Babylon or The Amulet, you understand about the politics, the social politics, as well as the politics politics in in uh, Alabama, Florida, in the Deep South States. And I think, um, I mean, sort of getting away from with that in terms of romance and horror, but I was going to link it back to using the same kind of places. There is a lot of stuff in your short stories. And, and also I'd argue the fisherman where it's not necessarily a love story, but it is a love story that you can't remove from the story will fall apart if you remove that. So there's a thing I say to the students when they, you know, when we're doing a site specific uh, performance, they will just do a lot. Cause I teach hip hop uh, and contemporary and they will say, they will just do those moves in front of the, architecture whatever and i'm like you're not using the architecture your narrative your of your dance yeah, yeah. falls apart if i take that building away or that tube station or that bus stop or whatever it is if i take that away and, and you put it in the studio then you've lost the narrative that's how i think you know you kind of approach these things you have to approach these things is anything that goes in your story particularly romance or sex sex is another thing um i, I feel that it's got to earn its place there. And not just from an editing standpoint, but because it's such a boring trope. This man is fighting for his wife. This wife is fighting for her kids or her man or whatever. You know, like it's so boring. And I think within your fiction, there's a there's a lot of stories like, I mentioned the grittiness of um, City Dog or um, the heartbreak in The Shallows, the heartbreak, especially the heartbreak in... Um, fisherman i just lost my brother uh before i read it and oh, he was involved in a a car accident my sister has similarities to dan um uh, in her experiences and i just as far as the individual goes who experiences love sex and the other stuff that gets written about in horror novels we've got to find a common ground with our reader but that's lazy common ground if it's not earned and i think in a lot of your stuff love features uh quite profoundly as part of the plot not as something that supports the plot so i wouldn't say the fisherman is about blah 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 flooded river valley big fish you know magician whatever i would say it's about <clears throat> grieving and coming to terms with the absence of love that has been your foundation and so <clears throat> And I've lost my point now. I've gone all around the houses. It's it's it's, it's well, 
it's it's also about I would love it. This this is kind of this is similar to Pet Cemetery as well because it's trying to bring back what's been what's been taken, but it's there's a there's a Faustian pact lurking deep inside the fisherman, yes. which is presented to <clears throat> not just the contemporary characters but the characters that we the immigrant characters that we see in the flashback story as well, and when you're put in that position of 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 grief the question is are you going to are you going to sign that faustian pact and essentially <laughs> you're going to well you turn to a pillar of salt let's put it that way you become right. the pillar of salt don't you that that's the way of putting it or, or are you going to navigate your way through the through the the choppy waters and find a way through to the rest of your life and you know abe and dan it goes it goes badly for one of them and less badly for the other, I guess you would say, given the last paragraph of the novel, which we won't spoil because the UK publication is coming and hopefully <laughs> we can drive a few people towards yeah. the book. I have, I have thought to myself that there is a sequel. I don't, I don't have any the tunnel. Oh, really? Are we talking about I, the I tunnel? Well, no, that, that there's a very specific sequel to that last scene. Uh, to, to the which last, would just right, be a okay. short, short story, probably from a distance at a county fair, where somebody is seeing someone with some yeah. little kids getting ice cream. Can I just I ask can a question it. about that? Is the is there some dialogue that says, "No, Abe, I am your father." <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but <laughs> what a shock that was! And you know, when that book came out. I actually saw that in the UK. We were visiting with with my uh, my parents' families, and I got the book. I got the movie tie-in edition of The Empire Strikes Back first, and so I read that. So I knew that before, like going in to see the movie. <laughs> I anyway, that's neither here nor there. But I bet it um, ruined it for you. Actually, what what I remember most about reading that book was it was the British edition, so maneuver was spelled with an O. And that, okay. that has never stopped screwing me up. That has like, like this is like forty <laughs> years later, and I'm just like, how do you spell maneuver? What isn't there an O in there? Why is yeah? There a they're a bitch there? to write and they're a bitch to pronounce. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just maneuver. Yeah, anyway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> maneuver. Yeah. But I, I roll think, the R's. I think there, man. There's again. There's there's a lot of things to say in in response to that, right? Like like one thing is is that, um, yeah. Um, love is present in a lot of my work. I, I think it's often disappointed love or, or uh, love that's been cut short in, in some, uh, in some way in, in the fisherman to focus on that for a second. I wanted even the character of the fisherman himself to be suffering from a loss so that, so that everybody um, from, from the narrator of the novel to the title character, the eponymous fisherman, is 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 driven by loss, is is riven by loss and driven by loss. That was that that as I was writing the book, that became part of of what I realized was happening in the book, could happen and and was happening. Um, the the interesting thing about the middle, one of the interesting things about the middle part of the book, the the, the fisherman was only always supposed to be a novella, um, and then the middle part just grew and grew and grew. And, and one of the reasons it grew was because I was like, well, I'm going to write about the construction of this local reservoir. I should really find out, you know, a little bit about it. 
And the more I found out, you know, the, 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 the deeper I dug, as it were, the more that there was there. And, you know, I had not realized that the reservoir was constructed. There was, you know, half of the people constructing the reservoir were African-Americans who had uh, largely uh, come north. And the other half were immigrants, uh, largely from, from Eastern and, and Central Europe. And I think for me, um, it, it became, I mean, I finished the book pre, pre-Trump. But the the kind of anti-immigrant rhetoric was was already ramping up, and there was something, you know, kind of satisfying to me, and there's, there remains something satisfying to me about having this middle narrative where all of the important characters are immigrants. That, that because that's, you know, um, I mean, if I want to whatever get on my liberal soapbox you know that's the american story that's you know we're all immigrants we all come from from somewhere um uh, i also think is that the middle part is the most frightening actually i think that's where the meat of the horror is even though you've got the you've got the, the hollywood action sequence at the end you've got your right. big set piece right. at the end that that feels more like a it, it's that's where all the stakes are mm-hmm. uh, and there is the big set piece but the middle part, the middle part, uh, where you have the, the 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 immigrants story, and you'll forgive me, I can't remember the names of the characters in the middle section, but the man who is again struck down by grief, and he makes this uh, Faustian pact to yeah, George, to, um, Helen and George, yeah, yeah, yeah. Helen and George to, <clears throat> to to bring back what was lost, and that's that. It takes what Bean and I have read a lot of books and it takes a lot to to creep us out but i would i thought that was genuinely unsettling and there are few and far books in between that can generate that real sense of, of dread not just a set piece but something really unsettling and when the the woman who gets run down by the cart comes back um and the descriptions of how she moves and how she speaks and how she's perceived by the other characters it's 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 frightening it's brilliantly done it's it sounds blasé you know a horror book should be frightening but it's very often not necessarily the case it could be uh dramatic and it could be full of suspense but it's not necessarily the same thing as as frightening but that that middle section of the book definitely does that well i'm more i'm more gratified by that than i feel i should be you know every time somebody says to me oh that freaked me out i'm like good like, yeah, is, yeah, yeah. What is wrong with you? It's hard, you know. I, I mean, Stephen King said that he he goes for, uh, what is it? He goes for dread, ter- first, terror, terror, the terror first, of the emotions, and I go yeah. for that. And if I can't go for that, I'll go for horror. Gross if out. I can't go for horror, and then it's gross out. Yeah, I'm not it. proud. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think also um, <clears throat> there's something very alienating mm-hmm. and othering, which you really don't want to do normally with a reader. But when I was reading The Fisherman the first time, I felt complete. I wasn't lying on my bed reading a book. I felt in a place that I wasn't sure of, you know, because I'm reading about these migrant families, particularly the woman in the cart, the whispering and all that. It's just so horrendous. And um, and then you have the ending as well, which is kind of like the set piece bit, which is very bleak and greyish sort of, you know, there's there's nothing that makes you feel good about The Fisherman. I <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be right there. That's the point. Yeah, that's nothing, on the front cover. Nothing yeah. makes you feel good. There's nothing about this book. <laughs> if you want me to write a testimonial on the front cover, I know it's, exactly. if it's on to print. I can't help you. <laughs> thank, I know, thank goodness it has. Yeah, I'm a bit of a nihilist, and I love, you know, 
I just love all that. And I love the fact that there's such bleakness um, in in The Fisherman, you know, which is probably a better way of saying there's nothing redeeming about or whatever it was I said. <laughs> well, but, I, um, I think that I, I have, um, you know, I'm also very close friends with, with Paul Tremblay. Mm. And Paul has very much a, a kind of a punk aesthetic when it comes to the sort of stance his writing takes, I guess you would say. And and he and I have talked about this a lot, that, you know, um, his his novel, The Cabin at the End of the World, which was, of course, filmed by M. Night Shyamalan as, as Knock at the Cabin Door. You know, one of the great things about all of Paul's stuff is that it doesn't look away. It doesn't back down. It doesn't give you the consolation that M. Night Shyamalan thinks he's giving you in his version, although there's actually there's a whole Very argument little. to be made that that his is actually even worse than Paul's. Um, yeah, I because agree. what he thinks is consolation is actually cosmically horrifying, but he doesn't realize that. Um, but but and so I, I think that there's one of the things that I've always loved about horror fiction is this feeling that it doesn't back down, that, that, that it is willing to say there is death, there is disease, there is decay, horrible things happen. And it, it's not necessarily like, yay, in a sort of Tim Burton kind of, of way, but, but it's, it's more, it's just an acknowledgement that these things happen and that they're part of life and that you can, you can, you can let them in, as it were. You can acknowledge them. And sometimes that, um, especially, especially in the United States, which is still so youth obsessed and and so reluctant to admit the body, in, in it, unless that body is young and healthy, uh, you know, suntanned, you know, like it is, it is not willing to to deal with the body when it starts to break down, let alone when it, when it dies. There's something about horror fiction that, um, I, I mean, it's funny. I go back to, you know, Melville talking about, uh, Hawthorne, uh, his, his, he writes this review of Hawthorne stories and he says, Hawthorne says no in a voice of thunder or voice like thunder. And I can remember when I read that, you know, 19 years old or something, I was like, what the hell is he talking about? Now I feel like I get it. You know, now Hawthorne is saying, not so fast with your easy consolations and your happy endings that, that you know, life isn't like that. And so although Hawthorne is a, a often quite a, you know, fantastical writer himself, uh, there there is this kind of grimness in, in his stuff that that, again, still at this age feels I mean, I want consolation, too. Don't get me wrong. You know, I'm, I'm closer to the grave <laughs> you know, than than to 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 birth. Um, so I, I'm, I'm okay. Like I understand the need for consolation, but, but there's something it, it bracing, uh, about stories that, that look at the world and say, yeah, you know, there, there, there's, there's death, there's, there's bad things here. Um, and, and I think there, there is a class of reader and a class of literary critic for that matter, who finds that very difficult to, to deal with, who, who sees that as, as, as immature potentially, or, or just, they, they, they kind of can't deal with it, you know? Um, and I, um, I feel bad for them, uh, because I think that there's something that's kind of bracing about, uh, um, about just something uh, cathartic. Rather than consoling, I think cathartic is probably. Yeah. I think and and I... it's, it's just that, Oh, thank God. Somebody else admits that of, of all people, Thomas Ligotti said that in his, 
his introduction to uh, the Nightmare Factory, his big collection, this essay called The Consolation mm. of Horror. He says, and it's funny because it's Ligotti. He says, the ultimate consolation of horror is that somebody, like you make a connection with somebody else, which is so funny, you know, Mr. Antinatalist. But, you know, <laughs> it's just that you feel that there's somebody out there, you read their story and you think, this person gets it. This mm. person, I, I feel this connection with, with this person. And if you can do that, it's like what we were talking about earlier, uh, we were talking about about Laird Barron, about that woman writing to him and talking about the 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 effect he had had on her her fiance's life, um, or her, her husband's life. Like like to make that kind of connection with somebody, um, yeah, we would all like to be rich. <laughs> I mean, there's no let's be let's be honest. You know, none of us are getting paid what we're worth for for the work that we're doing. Um, but at the same time, to, to make that kind of connection should not be discounted. That is that is profound and profoundly important. Yeah, I think horror deals with that so well. And it's one of the, you know, soapboxes I constantly get on on the writers forum when I'm told whether it's my work they don't like or something horror they've read or they talk about films in the same breath as books um, is that it's the human condition. It is you can't write something and I, I won't do spoilers because I know people wouldn't have written this, but you can't have written an ending like revival by Stephen King without having a firm grasp of understanding of existentialist dread, abject horror. And the fact that actually when you die, there might be nothing or there might be something or there might, you know, like the fact that the biggest bubble over our head from birth till death is death. And, you know, like, Yes, it's great to have kids and to, you know, life goes on, but you don't go on physically. You don't go on. And I think it's just constant. You can constantly plumb that for ideas. And well, you don't even have to plumb it for ideas. They're just thrown up constantly because we live in a constant state of abject fear, regardless of our subconscious or our conscious mind telling us it's fine. Just use positive, you know, uh, what's it called? You know, that therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy or positive mental attitude or all that kind of stuff is it doesn't matter. I mean, I've, I wouldn't say I'm a fearful person, but I also say, would say at the same time, I live in fear. <laughs> so, yeah, I, no, think I, I think that these, the, it's one of the arguments for the way that, that, that horror works, I, I think through monsters or, or magic or sort of whatever, you know, that, that, that it, these things, I, I think access a kind of an emotional truth. Again, to, to tie back to what we were talking about much, much earlier about Christine, you know, in 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 King's novel, Christine, most of that, you know, 90 percent of that, 95 percent of that was not my high school experience. It was not like like I, I there was no guy out of a 1950s movie with a switchblade threatening me or anything. Who like was that. 28 years old. But, yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's like, I'm still trying to pass shop class. Yeah. But um. But but what there but there were people who were cruel to me. Uh, there were people who made fun of me, you know. And and so King got at the way the adolescent me felt. And I I think that in a novel like Revival, let's say King gets at the way that you feel as you're getting older and as those end of life questions are are that they're gaining a certain kind of of force. Um, and and he allows that to to manifest it, itself. So I don't. I don't believe that that necessarily. Oh, I read. Uh, I, I didn't read Christine and think everything's better now. But I felt like I'm, I felt that connection. I felt maybe a little less alone. 
and and that um for those exist big existential questions about you know what comes next what if it's awful you know um i i think that that knowing that there's somebody who's willing to talk about that stuff that feels very consoling in, in some way yeah, definitely. Listen, I, I think we're going to have to wrap this up very soon because uh, oh god, look, getting it's... late here in Blighty. I'm sorry. I think um, but... we've because we've followed a different thing with this. Whereas in respect of you know, we're going to talk about your latest book and then we're going to do this because this has been a bit more organic. It's left me with more questions. I hope we can get you back on at some point. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I am happy. I, I don't have to, you know, we, we can, uh, I don't want to overwhelm you guys with, with what you. Oh, no, you it's know, not, it's your, not your... for us. I just think a two hour podcast for our listeners might be, you know, like, oh, sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, that's where we're sort of maxing out. Four, there. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it is one of those conversations where, you know, you, a few things have been said and it just opens up a whole other can of worms and we could go in this direction or this direction or this direction. I mean, here's a couple of things I'll say to try to like, like draw some of those stories together. Um, A a lot of the stories were written in response to um, calls from, uh, you know, sort of Lovecraft anthologies or Lovecraft themed anthologies. And one of the things I found uh, on the one hand, right. Lovecraft is very much, a lot of Lovecraft's imagery is very much, you know, it's about the sublime. Lovecraft is a writer of the sublime. So many of his images are the pleasing terror, you know, the, the vastness of Cthulhu and, and the vastness of time and, and so on. And what I find oddly, perversely maybe, is that when I think about that, I tend to go, the, the stories I write tend to go in exactly the opposite direction. And they tend to juxtapose that immensity with these very, very, you know, a guy living in his house in, in what might be like a, uh, a, a zoo enclosure or something like that for the, for the, the cosmic monsters that are just sort of, you know, who knows yeah, why they're right. doing, who knows why they let this, this person or this little plot of land uh, survive mostly. And so that's something that um, for, for any kind of Lovecraft's, uh, call for for stories or whatever i always i always wind up coming back to that i always wind up coming back to this this almost like raymond carver-esque emphasis on the domestic and and the the local and then that gets juxtaposed uh, against you know whatever is happening in well the, i I'm, I'm pretty sure it was goethe who said that the job of the poet is to reflect the universal but in the individual yeah, and and it's when I teach creative writing, it's it's <laughs> it's one of the things. She, I tell she's my, a well uh, she's a well known uh, follower of Goethe, isn't she? He's Madge. As I recall, that was that was one of my favorite albums. Like a um, it's, uh It was Elective Affinities, <laughs> um, but uh, the album. But uh, um, but I, I'll tell my students that it's one of the paradoxes of of art that the more specific it is, the more universal it is. And it it seems, oh, if I want to write um, something that's going to appeal to everybody, I should just use very general words. It was a beautiful sweater, you know? But when you think about it, like, well, what does that look like? What does that mean? It doesn't, you know, it, it, those general words are so general, they lose their Hmm. effectiveness, you know? Um, So, yeah, I, I think a lot of what, I, I think a lot of what I've, I've wound up doing in, in, in my fiction, um, in, in the, especially in the earlier stuff, 
a lot of what I was trying to do was was take a run at a bunch of classic monsters and invert them, twist them around, turn them around. And um, so, yeah, the, the Wide Carnivorous Sky is a vampire story, except the vampire is afraid of the dark and the vampire comes from outer space. And, and you know, I, I was trying to just like start with with that. Um, yeah, The Shallows is, is you know, Lovecraft, post-apocalypse, apocalyptic Lovecraft. But all of that is just happening in the literally widescreen background. Um, City of the Dog is a ghoul story, um, except it's also, you know, the the disintegration of a relationship. Um, and um, a, a guy who is a narrator who in some ways is so self-absorbed, he doesn't realize what's what's actually happening, the story that he's that he's caught up in. Um, and I, I, in Paris in the mouth of Chrono, same thing, people who don't quite understand everything that is, that is happening to them. And that was, you know, a story like that came about because Ellen Datlow said, I'm putting together an anthology of supernatural noir and do, you know, have at it. And I was like, I have no idea what that would look like. Um, but then it became for me, a really interesting kind of challenge. And that might be, one of those things we were talking about earlier, you know, the sort of absurd idea um, or, the, or, the, or the weird mashup sort of challenge that it can be very useful for your brain to have to say, oh, my God, supernatural. What, what is that even, you know, because then you have to think to yourself, well, in, in my case, of that, well, noir always involves betrayal. That's the essence of noir is that somebody is betraying somebody else. And all the torture scandals were coming out about Abu Ghraib and, there's, there's still a lot people don't know about what happened at Bagram Air Base and, and so on. And, and, and those things became like, oh, well, okay, maybe I can do something, you know, with disgraced people and all this kind of stuff. So I, um, yeah, a lot of those and a lot of my stories continue, um, I, I continue to operate that way. I'll have a story coming out in um, Ellen Datlow contacted me and said, I want to do a Christmas anthology, except it's, it's you know, like that time of year. Um, Yule, Christmas, Hanukkah, all this kind of stuff. There's so many different holidays that happen at that time of the year. And, you know, my initial thought was, oh, I got to write some kind of like, um, you know, Christmas monster kind of story or something like that. I had some ideas. And then I thought, wait, what if I write like a really dirty story? Like I've never, there, there, there haven't been a lot of Chris, a lot of stories I've written that are really, really like sexy, sexy stories. And I thought, oh, that's horrible. <laughs> I thought, you know, but I was also kind of like pleased with myself because I thought that is, that is like, again, like sort of, okay, how do I do that then? You know, that's like sort of just outside the box, I, I, I guess. So um, for, for your, for your listeners who are writers, who are thinking to themselves, you know, okay, what, how do I, how do I get ideas? How do I generate ideas? Um, you know, things that you can do, look at anthologies that are out there already. There are plenty of anthologies I've missed the, the call for. There was an anthology of Wizard of Oz stories. And I thought, man, how would I do a Wizard of Oz story? I'm still turning that over. I don't, I don't, I, I, there was an anthology of Alice in Wonderland stories and I'm, you know, again, missed the call for that. And I finally figured that one out. Um, God, where did it, like, maybe it was in Mark Morris's, one of his anthologies. Um, so, um, 
So I, like, like take anthology ideas, not because you think you could write for them, but because you don't know how you would write for them and then make that your, your kind of challenge. How do I write a story that, that, that is pleasing to me, to, you know, to whoever I am, but that, that fits with this particular theme of, you know, sharks or something like that. Oh, sharks are so boring, right? Okay, now you've got to write a shark story. That's your, that's your <laughs> challenge, right? You've got to write a shark story and it's got to be interesting to you as the, as the writer. I think we've well, got to give, a, give uh, thanks. Oh, we've mentioned Ellen Datlow a lot. Yeah. If sorry, Dan, did it, what was and, and I was going to mention Steve Hall as well. Of talking of sharks and I just well, just before we go on to that, just let me. Just, I just want to come on to. We've mentioned Ellen Datlow a few times. Um, if our listeners don't know who she is, then shame on you. But secondly, uh, she's just the best editor of uh, horror anthologies. Like if I see Ellen Datlow's name on something just i buy it instantly because there is never a weak story award-winning bram stoker award-winning editor really good anthologies um and then the other thing i wanted to come back to was what um john said about his characters and writing traditional monsters in a new way is i don't want the listeners to get the idea that you are just going to be reading a vampire story or a werewolf or whatever that is the most original horror i've read uh without oh, a doubt you. And um, we are not. De- I mean, that's. I'm not going to go into details, but the end at the ending of um, in Kronos in the mouth of uh, in Kronos in in Paris in, Paris, in the mouth in of Kronos. Yeah, yeah. that in the mouth of madness? In the mouth of madness. Yeah, yeah I knew. <laughs> much John Carpenter. Um, that end. That ending and the description of you know who the target is is just horrible because it is rooted in. I'm in a hotel corridor and I can see. It just is so normal and so natural. It's different to anything we've ever read. Um, so I just wanted to sort of put that disclaimer on something you might have said in modesty, well, not in modesty, but about your own work is the fact that there is a huge amount of originality. There has never been a book like The Fisherman writ- written. There's never been a monster like that that been written. And I'm not just talking about the fish. I'm talking about the magician and everything. It's just so unique. And I think, you know. Well, we're, at a, we're at a point in time where there are, so many you know th- th- there's a there's there's just a, there's an abundance of great horror novels and, and horror stories at this at this particular moment and there are so many novels uh, uh you know like like younger writers like rachel harrison writes a novel like the return her first novel which is a brilliant and scary and, and freaky novel um a novel uh um a novelist like uh, uh, Gwendolyn Keist writes a, a novel. Jeez, uh, um, what was it? Um, her last novel, whose name? Oh my god, it just went right out of my head. Um, anyway, it like the Immortals. Somehow, Immortals are in there. Um, uh, S. P. Miskowski writes um, a, a series of, of short novels uh, uh, set in in an invented town in Washington State in the United States. That there were just people who were doing these things that are that are new, um, and I mean you can always if you if you if you're well read enough, um, if if you if you if you watch enough movies, you can always find the traces of things. I mean it's it's but but you have these things that that are just um, astonishingly um, ambitious, and they're written by people who have the talent to make 
that ambition to realize that ambition right which is always uh, always a nice uh, a nice thing um Victor Laval's The Changeling, which is which is a terrific. Yeah, that's the one. Reluctant, reluctant immortals. Yeah, yeah, for for Gwendolyn Keist. Yeah, um, and this is not to turn into a sort of a listing, you know, contest because there's always going to be a ton, a ton of people that I'm going to leave out. But that's almost the point that there's so much good stuff that's being done right now um, that that I can't keep track of of all of it. That it, it almost doesn't matter which stuff you pick up. In a way, yeah, and and just... there's you know there's um, I mean I haven't mentioned a writer like Joel Lane who was a great favorite of mine who who died much much too young and who left behind just an astonishing body of of short fiction and also a, a really um, oh uh, who is the press a small press brought out an an incomplete book that he was writing on the horror field uh, which is just terrific I think it's. The Spectacular Darkness, maybe, I, I think, uh, Tartarus Press. Um, and you can get it, you can get an e-copy of it for under $10 American, I want to say. It's it's just, it's wonderful. And, and it makes his loss all the more acute. But, but um, yeah, you, you just have, so we mentioned Todd A. Thompson uh, uh, earlier. There's, there's just, there's, there's so many great writers. It's, um, and it can make you a little mad, you know, trying to keep up with everybody. Yeah. Um, and, and, and as a, as a writer and slash reader, just, you know, realize you're not going to be able to, but that's a cool problem to have. You know, there's one of Mahler May's poems where he's like, alas, I have read all the books. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's Mallory May, and he means you know they're like whatever hundred classic books. I've read them all. That sounds um, like something Pete could say. <coughs> Pete, Arcana. yeah, he's read all the fantasy books. Any fantasy he? Book yeah, yeah, actually. Yeah. And listen, I, I think we're going to have to wrap this up now because we are going way over time. But it's, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That's before, no, no, no. I apologize. It it just means that we're just going to have to get you back to continue the conversation. Don't worry, John. It's not you. It's Dan. It is entirely my fault. Bad, bad chairmanship. Well, this, you bad know, maybe we should have uh, see if we can have someone else on too and have a. Have we a were thinking of, of that, yeah. We and we've got yeah. one or two ideas, so we'll we'll kick that about with you. But before we go, seventh of October is the UK publication date for the Fisherman. Go out and buy it. Go out and read it. It's a phenomenal book. Even if you're not a horror fan, there also, is a lot of other stuff going on in the Fisherman. It's a wonderful book. It I deserves. I, I mean, I don't Maybe one last question. Do you know why it's taken such a long time to have an official UK release? I don't actually. I don't. Um, it's, it's been, um, it, it, it has been translated into, into um, a, a number of other languages, uh, Spanish, uh, Portuguese. Um, there's uh, um, a Czech version, a Greek version, a Russian version. Um, a Japanese version is, uh, I think, on the way, and and for some reason, um, Britain and France took the took the longest. There's a German version. It's exceptionalism, um, and and British, it just British exceptionalism. Uh, and you know, my family is so much of my family is is in the UK that I really wanted, um, I I really wanted them to have uh, to have access uh, to the book. So yeah, I'm I'm quite quite pleased that uh um that the it, it's going to be more widely available yeah it's brilliant it's it's long overdue everybody so, should again, read it 7th of, 7th of october yeah and everybody on our website should read it um but if there you can get the yes there'll be a contest <laughs> yeah. get the um american version because the cover 
is phenomenal. Um, Albert Beard's uh, Puget Sound on the East Coast is on the cover of the American version, which is this painting of, you can, I just, it's perfect for that book. And then there's a new one, which doesn't do as much justice, I think, on the new. Have you seen the new? Oh, yeah, because that's how I saw this you. Is the, yeah, yeah, this I, is the I, UK. The UK version, I, I think, is I'm, I'm quite I'm quite happy with. I'm, I've not I'm seen quite, I mean, I, I love uh, I love the uh, the American version, but I was actually really pleasantly surprised with what they came up with for the UK version, because most of the foreign editions have just borrowed the American, uh, some version of the American cover. And um mm-hmm. And I, I, uh, Canelo took a, a, you know, they were like, no, we want to, we want to do a redesign, and uh, and what they came up with, I was like, okay, that's that's actually pretty. I'm nice. pleased because I, I'm, it gives us an excuse to. Oh, I'm going to go out and buy the UK version. I've got a dogged American version upstairs somewhere, but I'm going to buy the UK version Thank because you. it's a Thank nice you. shiny design and. Yeah, yeah, yeah well, well, it's nice to have that point of difference. I just, and I'm sure Bean is going to get it as well. Yeah, well, I've got it. Anyway. I've had it three times because I keep giving it away to people. Um, yeah, the, he um, does. He does. I haven't. I have you really know. should be paying him commission because <laughs> yeah, he's, I know, told, I he's told yeah, everybody. I mean, that, you know, you have all to about. You wanted book. to have me on here so you could present me with the bill at the end. Yeah, listen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to be fair, though, I'm passing comment on something I've not seen up close, but I just love the first. I the only cover of. The only cover I saw your cover reveal video, but you can't really see it. I didn't really couldn't make it yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wrong glasses on or whatever. <clears throat> but I love the um, Puget Sound cover. Just it's my desktop. You know, I have that on my desktop after that. I saw that book. So just, you know, I'm not serious. Whoever you are, whether you're American or English, buy it and um, and bloody have the time of your life because it is the Star Wars of horror. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That's. <laughs> That's about the it, best compliment. Just to clarify, he, just to clarify, he also likes Star Wars, so it's, it's oh, okay. okay. All right, <laughs> the original movies. I hope you know all of them. He likes everything, <laughs> every single, bit. every Cartoons. every bit of even oh, the toys, the, the wig, the catchphrase, everything. He likes all of it. Um, okay. So anyway, I'm going to have to. I'm going to call time now, John. It's been we such a pleasure. We haven't called time because we've Absol- got questions to ask. Those. Oh, oh yes, yeah, sorry, okay. sorry, sorry. We've got three questions for you. Well, you know oh, what? You kind you. of answered one of them. We always ask, what are you reading now and what would you recommend? But you've recommended about oh, a dozen books. Yeah, so okay, we, so we'll, in place we'll of pass that, on that one. In place of that, I'm going to ask you, what would your demon be if you were in his dark materials? <sighs> oh, that's a good question. I've thought about that sometimes. It would be, uh, be a Leviathan, right? That would be hysterical, and I can't ever get it through the door. <laughs> yeah. I can't go anywhere because there's just this big sea monster outside. Um, I, you know, that is a that is a really really good question. I I think um, I feel like a cat um, because I grew little up blue with, crab. I, I grew up with. Uh, he's not really. Is he a crab? Um, um, crustacean. But, uh, when uh, so I think it would be a, I think it would be some form of of cat. I think that would that was sort of a, a temperamental cat that wouldn't always do what I wanted it to do. Um, alternately, it might be some type of bird. It might be uh, the crow, right, is the obvious sort of, of answer, but it might be some kind of small raptor that would uh, that would just sort of look at things uh, uh, with a hungry expression or that sort of alien expression birds can have sometimes, mm. you know? Oh, well, I was hoping for something Never really mind. out there like... 
what well, I've already got nudie See, rank. So I told you, you right? How much I told more? You to lower your expectations. I know, this, is, I can't, this has been the most disappointing podcast I've ever been on. <laughs> <laughs> that in and of itself, though, is that's a mark of pride for me, right? <laughs> that's well, it, it, it can only get better next time, I right, suppose, exactly. can't it? I want to say, my demon has no name because it's you know something like that cosmic. Your demon's your demon's Madonna. Isn't no, my it? demon. Is a, <laughs> my demon's a pike. Uh, nice. Yeah. Nice. Should we talk about your yeah. demon, Dan? What the nudibranch, mm. Judith? His new his mm. his demon's called Judith, and she's a nudibranch. Do you want a nudibranch? A space mm. a sea slug. Oh, a yeah. sea slug. Okay, mm. that's good. Yeah. that's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah. I, that means I'd have to cart around a you know a portable sea salt aquarium with me That's, right so right. again you know, logistical problems. salinity and you'd always be worried yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 anyway let's call time john it's been absolute pleasure hasn't it really Chris? really excellent it's been thank you super super oh, thank you so much and dan and, i need to say uh, to you as well dan i think you've really improved as well oh thanks very much <laughs> Sadly, I cannot return the compliment. You, you, you've just dive bombed. You've nosedived this episode. I'm sorry. <coughs> anyway, thank you so much, John. Hopefully, we'll see you again in the future yes, if, uh, if we Excellent. can make it work. Thank you so much. And uh, thanks everyone for listening. Bye all. This episode of Cronscast was brought to you by Dan Jones, Christopher Bean, and our special guest, John Lagan. Additional content was provided by Brian Sexton and Jay Starnaper. Special thanks to Brian Turner and all the staff at Crons, and thanks to you for listening. Next month, we'll be talking to the filmmakers Greg Hale and Ed Sanchez about Jonathan Glazer's masterful 2013 film, Under the Skin. They'll also be discussing their new project, Black Velvet Fairies, and the 25th anniversary of one of the greatest and most original horror movies of all time, The Hair Witch Project. 